Welcome to the Freedom Fridays podcast with me, your host, Pete Clark, the Whispers Guy. Work seems to expand to the time that we give it. And I've been investing my time, occasionally on a Friday, to explore how we use our time, our energy, our attention, and the impact it has on our identity. I've been exploring over season one some of the mindset shifts in the handcuffs of I have to, to the freedom of I choose to. And I've shared some conversations, some tips, some tools about how you might want to invest your own time, your own energy, your own attention, how you might want to, if you choose to, make some changes to your identity, how you might have freedom from I have to and design a life around I choose to. If that's of interest to you, then this is the podcast for you. In season two, I'm going to be exploring some experts and asking them what freedom means for them and trying to help people work to live and not live to work. Trying to help people add life to their years and not just years to their life. So let's dive on in and here's season two. Welcome to this episode of Freedom Fridays. Now, my guest this week is actually someone that I believe is living the Freedom Fridays philosophy, where she's convinced herself and committed to school kids or not taking the school holidays off, which if I reflect on my own journey of Freedom Fridays, I was going to think thinking I was brave taking a Friday off, whereas Ralph, Gabrielle Dolan, she's taking the whole of the school holidays off. So, Ral, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Pete. I'm looking forward to talking about Freedom Fridays and, and freedom in general. Cool. So why don't we start there? And the, the premise around Freedom Fridays uh, in the work that you do, um, what does freedom mean? Freedom to me is always choice. That's what freedom to me is like, even if you talk about financial freedom, it's, um, it's about choice. And, and that to me, it's what true freedom is because there's a lot of people that don't have choice. They don't have choice in the job they do and, you know, based for a whole lot of reason, but freedom to me is choice. And um, I still remember really early on in my early twenties and I actually had any, I didn't even know whether I wanted to have kids or not. And I remember making financial decisions like um, superannuation. I remember at the age of 22, putting 17% of my pay in super, which is, which is probably not the greatest financial decision, but I just, I always remember if I ever decide to have children, I want to have the choice of going back to work. I don't want to have to go back to work because I, I can't afford not to. Um, and to me, that's what freedom's all about is choice. How would you, uh, there's loads of places we can go with that. I'm interested, first of all, given the world that we live in, there are so many choices. You could argue, you go to the supermarket and it's no longer you know, tea or coffee. It's a hundred different brands of tea, left, right, north, south. How do you, how do you help or reconcile when there's so many choices? Mm. I love the, um, you know, the the FOMO, the fear of missing out. I love yeah. that it sort of changed to JOMO, which was the joy of missing out. Oh, and okay. I think, I think because, and you're right, there's so many things you can do. 
Um, so I live, I live by the philosophy of just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it or you mm-hmm. need to do it. So I think you need to, to have freedom and around your choices and to me, work-life balance and all that type of stuff is, is getting good at saying no to things mm-hmm. that you just don't, if it doesn't really excite you or energize you or you get something out of it, then the answer is no. Um, you shouldn't be just doing things out of fear of missing out or doing things out of, um, you know, expectation that you should do it. So it's it's been really I think just really clear on that doesn't give me energy. So the answer to mm. that is no. Mm. Um, I introduced you as someone that I've, you know, having had a conversation behind the scenes felt that was someone who was probably living the Freedom Fridays philosophy where you're, you take the, the school holidays off. Um, would you just give us a little bit of background to that? And, and, you know, maybe in three parts, a little bit of background, how you came to that commitment and, some of the challenges you've had on the way on keeping the commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Um, so Pete, look, I, I left my corporate job 17 years ago. So I worked at national Australia bank. So I got the standard, you know, four weeks leave. Mm-hmm. I was working part. So, I, you know, when I left NAB, I, the, like, our kids were like two and five. So I was working part-time. So there was a little bit of, um, freedom there I guess and had brilliant um, managers that allowed me pretty much to do and work as long as little as I wanted to but when I left I left and I started teaching people storytelling it'd be fair to say that um, you know trying to sell storytelling into corporate 17 years ago there wasn't it wasn't very popular back then so I I had quite a bit of time on my hands and um, which was fine the kids were young all good that was good and then as 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 it started to go and as storytelling became really popular and it got to the point where my husband wanted to leave his corporate job. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, I need to take this quite seriously. I need to be earning now as much money for him to feel comfortable leaving yeah. because, you know, he had fully supported me when I left the corporate role. And so I, I did. And I, I literally quadrupled the salary, which means I quadrupled my work. And I had a year that I was working a lot and traveling a lot. And it got to the point where I thought, this is good, but not sustainable. And this is not, not how I envisage, envisage what a successful business and life would look like. Mm. So I think after I got to the point where I financially we were okay we were good and I I think in my because there was so much work coming in from the business you sort of get over that thing of what if no one buys my buys me ever again and you know that stays for quite a few years so I guess (laughs) I guess I had the confidence to say you know what I think I can just draw a few lines in the sand and Mm. some of those things and I started with not working school holidays now as you know, in Australia, we get like 12 weeks school holidays. So I decided I wasn't going to work school holidays. So the, because, of, because I run training workshops and conferences, some of that's relatively easy because no one's running training on the yeah. 20th of December or on the 10th of January. So pretty much from mid-December to almost the end of January, the people that really aren't running training, they're predominantly not running training in the September school holidays as well because a lot of people take that off. Yep. So it, it, does, it did make it a bit easier. I would have clients want, want me to do training and I look at my diary and I'm thinking, oh, that's school holidays. And I, and I would say to them, now you realise that school holidays, they could, it could be hard to get people to attend training in school holidays and they would go, oh, yo, we did 
didn't even think of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay, that's okay. My pleasure. <laughs> so it was relatively easy, relatively yeah. easy. Um, but there were still some challenges. There's, so there was an absolute some challenges. So I, um, I would often still get requests to run training. And it could even be if like if I would give dates, it might be the first one or two days of school holidays or the last one or two days. So it's not in the middle. So that's mm-hmm. it's sort of that interrupts, ups, ups, ups me, interrupts mm-hmm. sort of the flow of the holidays. Yep. Yep. But, you know, it's not just it's a half day. You sort of got to get, get yeah, into yeah, the yeah. of it. There has been times, I, I remember one time it was early January and it was a client, an overseas client and because they don't close down as much as um, we do in January and it was three days and it would have, it was in um, Vietnam and it would have meant I probably missed a week of the school holidays, but it was yep. three days. Yep. It was very good money. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really exciting project that I wanted to do. It was the start of a long-term project. So I just sat down with the family and said, is this okay? And they went, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Um, so it's, it's, I would say I can stick to that, stick to that sort of rule. I don't know, 90, 90% of the time. And it's only, um, it's only an, for an exception and for an exception that I really want to do, or sometimes really want to help out a client that, that I will, I will do it. Mm. And have you noticed any material difference in, uh, you know, your health and balance having taken that time off or any difference in the business? Are you as busy, less busy, more busy? You know, what's been the kind of outcome on the other side of that line? Yeah. So interesting from the business perspective, if I talk at that first, it, it's actually, it's actually increased my business in a way that like it's a scarcity. So like you're literally saying I am not available this time. And I'm, when I, I must admit, when I first started doing this, I would just say I'm not available and I didn't give reasons or whatever, but I I assume clients just thought I was busy working. I'm quite comfortable now to say I'm not available because I don't work school holidays. Um, But what it meant is because I wasn't available those days, it just meant, oh, it's it's sort of, it was, it's a whole scarcity thing. So it was like, well, when are you available? I'm available here. Um, so that actually worked wonders. That actually had a really good positive effect on my business, um, not working school holidays. And, and I should also, to Pete, also say is that by the, I don't even, I only work three days a week is my ideal. And, and, and I do that because I'm running training. Sure. I think if you're running training five days a week, you come Thursday or Friday, that is not the best version of you on stage. Yeah. God. yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's a lot of energy. So my ideal week is no more than three, you know, days. And, and yeah. that could be three full days. It could be three half days. It could be three one hour keynotes. Yeah. Um, which does mean, you know, when you look at my calendar, it probably means about 80 to 100 days a, a year I'm working, yep. which, which again, it's, it's scarcity. It's like I'm not available. It's like if someone, if, you know, if someone rang me now and said, you know, uh, we want to run training in July, have you got time? I would go, oh, I've got about three days available in July. <laughs> yeah. now, now, granted, I'm in New York for two weeks of that, two yeah. weeks of July. So it's, it's all genuine. So it, it's helped with the business. Um, for me on a personal level, it's, it's absolutely helped with my energy. So okay. giving, giving 100% of yourself on stage in front of people 
is draining. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. I love it and I'm pumped afterwards, but it is it is draining long-term. Yeah. And so I find the benefit of school holidays, it's sort of like, you know, 10 weeks on pretty much, two weeks off, 10 weeks on, two weeks off. It roughly turns into 10, maybe 12 weeks um, where when I have the two weeks down, it's sort of like I'm I'm itching. I'm itching to get back into it again. So I'm really right. missing it. So from a personal perspective, it's, it really helps with my energy levels. Yep. Um, you know, and it, it, it gives you time to think. It gives me time to write. Yeah. It's, you know, mm-hmm. all that all that stuff. So there are... <sighs> There are challenges, but I think you just got to commit to it. And and for me also, like I, I remember I was um, doing some work with uh, like a, a partner of a, a consulting firm and he, he's one of the partners. So he's in demand. Yeah. And I remember him saying, he sort of questioned me. He goes, but like you, you can't just say no to a client. Like when you say you don't work school holidays, if, if they want, you to do it you can't say how do you how he said to me how do you say no and I go well if I say yes to them yeah I'm saying no to my family and it doesn't matter how much I love my clients and love my work they're always going to be second to my family so part of me is like if you say yes to them you're saying no to your family and then he said to me he goes yeah but the problem with me is they really want me and they only want me and I'm going surely that should be easier for you to say, no, I'm not like, if they only want you, then they will get them to change their date because they want you. So, so it it is a combination of that. And I, you know, if someone wants to run a workshop and I go, I'm not available and I know they're flexible with the dates, then they will change it. Sometimes Mm. they've got a conference and it's been booked in and there's no flexibility at all. And they really want me. That's when I'll go, look, okay, I I will do that. But um, it's the exception, not the rule. Thank you. Um, I I did notice one of your LinkedIn uh, posts about this 10 on, two off, 10 on, two off and so on. So, I have been reading myself a little bit about, you know, we know from an energetic and attention, physiologically, emotionally, psychologically, recovery is as important as warm up. Mm-hmm. Right? We know in athletics and professional sport, you know, for the job that we do, having the time to recover is as important as, you know, getting fired up. So with your two weeks off, and I know that doesn't mean you're off. But with that two weeks off, how do you balance the active recovery aspect versus the passive recovery aspect? Mm, yes, it's that is a very good and timely question. <laughs> and the reason I say that is um, I I could not run a workshop for two months. And it's to me, it is a little bit like riding your bike. You're, you're back into it, but it can take a little bit of time. The, the yeah. longer I've had off a little bit of time to warm up a little bit and Today was a classic example. So I literally got back from holidays six o'clock last night and I had a workshop this morning. Now, this workshop is not one of the workshops I run all the time. So it has been a while since I've run this workshop, like three months or something. But it was also with a New Zealand client. So it was a seven o'clock start for me. And so I was up at six, um, getting ready. And then I just... Like the, the, they loved it. They were going, oh, my God, this is yeah, amazing. But but I felt I yeah. felt I was like, oh, my God, the first half hour, I felt like I was stumbling over <laughs> things and saying things yeah. in different order. Yeah. And I was, 
you know what, if it had been at nine o'clock, it probably wouldn't have been an issue. I would have got up at seven. I would have had a bit more time to, yeah. you know, just prepare myself. So that that's the thing. But um, yeah, I, I felt, I felt I was um, mumbling a bit, but they probably didn't notice at all. And the feedback indicated that they didn't, well, maybe they yeah. did notice, but they certainly wasn't saying, but so it does take a while. And, and it's the same with keynotes. Like it, you know, people will go, oh, you charge that more, that much for a 45-minute keynote. It was like it's never just 45 minutes. It is like that That to me is your whole day getting ready for that. Yeah, I came across a, a really good example of that. I'll see if I can find it whilst I'm, um, I'm chatting to you about that very, and I guess this is the world that we exist in. And it was something around, you know, how can you charge that much for 45 minutes? Mm. And the premise being, well, it's taking me 20 years to get it down to 45 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And there's, and, you know, it's a time and material thing for some of the clients, but for us, it's a, well, that's just what it takes to get it to a 45 yeah. minute impactful message. Yeah. And it's, and it's an interesting take. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's, um, yeah, you're bringing all your decades and experience into that 45 minutes and the insights. And it's, it, to me, it's also the value you add. It's like, it's how much value do you add? I remember my husband said once to me, you charge more than a lawyer. I go, I add more value than a lawyer. Which like, <laughs> Love it. You know, again, again it was like, um, you know, sometimes you do have very rare, but sometimes, and you know, because budget reasons, like people go, come and, come and, you know, train our top 150 leaders on storytelling. So I, I, I literally had this you know, a few months ago where they want me to, and it wasn't a keynote, it was a half day, yeah. half day training session. The top, you know, 150 leaders. They want to. They want to be able to communicate their values internally and externally. They want to change their culture to value driven. They want people to understand the strategy, and then I sort of tell them the price for a half day workshop, and they go, "Well, well, that's a bit expensive." And it was like, it's like the the value I'm giving yeah. you, at, at yeah. like, and I sort of say, "So hang on a minute, just." I'm going to make your leaders better communicators. I'm going to help your leaders communicate the strategy more effectively. I'm going to help them communicate your the company values that you've just spent six months um, reviewing, help them communicate it. And then I go, and then I always go, actually, I think it's too cheap. I think yeah. it's just like, yep. and, and because I would say, what is that worth? Like, what is that worth? That is probably worth if you really sat down and thought about it, how do we, if we could get our leaders to communicate the strategy and values better and it's our top 150 leaders, what's that worth? I reckon any CEO would go, that's probably worth half a million dollars. And yeah. I was like, well, I'm not charging anywhere near that. Yeah. So, but, you know, if you'd like to pay me that for, you know, some training <laughs> yeah. workshops, yeah. Yeah. but that's what it's worth. Yeah, you're right. It's a perennial challenge for us in this in this world. The, you know, the, the the value equation, whether it's time and material or the impact that it can have, that is sometimes intangible, but can be very tangible on the top line, the bottom line, brand reputation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's not it's not charging on time and not thinking about yeah. time. Yeah. Um, Ra, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I do want to pick up on this. So, a little bit of an agenda from me around storytelling. And, mm -hmm. and if anyone's watching the video, they'll know they can see the books behind you. I think you said seven books published on storytelling. Yeah, um, Hughes County. 
Well, <laughs> but who's counting? Well, I'm, I'm, ca- I'm counting because I've got one yet. And I do say yet because it's kind of in, in train. I'm really interested in tying these two concepts together, the stories that we tell ourselves and this concept of freedom of choice. Yeah. So I'd be really interested with your experience. What do you see leaders, organizations, what freedom, what stories do they, should they, could they have freedom from mm. that are holding them back? And what would be better, more appropriate, more helpful stories to tell themselves? Yeah, it's 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 a really good insight. I think I think the stories we tell ourselves either help us or yep. hinder us. They either hold us back or mm-hmm. they propel us forward. And, and it's all the stories we tell ourselves. And normally it comes around um, the stories we tell ourselves making us feel comfortable or we're making decisions based on other people. It's... Um, mm. So I, I, I remember I was speaking to a, a, I was running a workshop and there was a woman who had just, you know, who, she'd just sort of come back from work. Her kids were two or three. She was really struggling, like really struggling. She was exhausted. And I was talking to her about, you know, putting boundaries. Like, you know, we've, we've talked about not working school holidays, but you could just go, I'm just not working Monday morning or I'm, or I'm not having meetings before nine 30 because yeah. I it, like, or I'm finishing work at five um, or I'm taking my hour lunch break and going for a walk, whatever it is, it's setting boundaries. And she, cause she talked about how she used to go to the gym all the time, but she hasn't had time to do any exercise herself. And she said to me, I, I just can't do it. I wouldn't be able to do it now. When the kids are older, that's when I'll prioritize my health. And I like, and that when I hear stuff like that, that to me is really sad because what that's the story she's that I can't do it at the moment is the story she's telling herself. Where mm-hmm. what's the real story? The real story perhaps is I don't have the courage to push back. That's mm. potentially the real story. I remember when I went to um yeah. Harvard about seven years ago, it was on adaptive leadership. And one of the most, we were there for about a week. It was one of just one of those short executive education courses. And the lecturer was so challenging that every time you would say an answer and we're all at Harvard. So we all think we're bloody smart and putting our hand up and saying something. And then he would just go, or that he goes, that could be true. Or it could be a convenient story you're telling yourself. And it it was just like, Oh, Oh. And, And so I think we go, I don't have time to exercise is a convenient story we're telling ourselves. What we're saying is we're not prioritizing. So in this instance, I would say that she felt or she didn't have the courage to push back and say, no, I'm not available for meetings before nine o'clock. Line in the sand. Now, of course, there'll be some exceptions to that, but if you don't draw the line in the sand. So I think it's stories like that that are holding ourselves back from this financial freedom or not financial freedom, freedom, like freedom of choice, freedom, what we're doing. I, um, on the flip side, Pete, I've got my, my daughters now are 18 and 21 and uh, my 21 year old daughter was going for a job interview. So she's only been in the workforce for four or five months. So she had a, she had a four month contract and she is just looking for other short-term contracts and she's decided to work full-time and study part-time. So she was, she was studying full-time, but has flipped it for the last year or so. And she was going for a job interview 
And I asked her how, how she went and she went, oh yeah, it went all right, but I don't think, I don't think I'll get the job. And I went, why? And she goes, well, I asked them that I need, I need Tuesday afternoons off because I've got uni. And they, they said, uh, we're not sure if that we can give you that flexibility. And she went, well, then I'm probably not the right person for the job. So like part of me, part of me was like, good on you, good yeah. on you for having boundaries. The other part of me was going, oh my God, I would never have thought to say that at 21. Yeah. But but this generation are not, the, the stories they're telling themselves is why can't I have flexibility from day one? Where our generation, the stories we told ourselves was, do crap jobs for 20 years and slowly move up you know that yeah. I don't want to do that but you have to do it because that's what we told ourselves so you know I, I, this the, you know so if you look at that example um my daughter's story the story she's telling herself well I need I need flexibility I wanted is is serving her and she's having the courage mm. to ask for it yeah I love the idea Ral, of uh, a convenient story yeah um, and in your experience working with leaders, humans, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, are, there, are there a series of common convenient stories that we put out there to prevent us from avoid, deny, mask certain fears, concerns, or worries? Are there, are there kind of common convenient stories that you've come across? I think um, I don't have time is a very common oh. convenient story. <laughs> um, I didn't have the opportunity. Yep. So, for example, I often, when I do storytelling workshops and we'll run the train, we'll run the training and they're sort of, you know, okay, you now got to get out and share your story. And then I'll see them six weeks later and we'll do the debrief and I go, right, so how did, how did sharing your story go? And it was like... I, I didn't have the opportunity. I haven't, I haven't had the opportunity yet to share a story. And it was like going, and I just, I just push back. I go, really? I, right. So you haven't run, done a presentation in the last six weeks. You haven't met with a client in the last six weeks. You haven't had a team meeting in the last six weeks. You haven't had a mentoring or coaching session in the last six weeks. I, I have not had the opportunity is a very, very convenient story for I don't have, I didn't have the courage to do it. Yeah. Um, even I don't have time can be, it's not a priority or, you know, what, what if I failed? So uh, the opportunity, I've never had that opportunity. It was, that's a convenient story we tell ourselves. And I'm speculating here as well, Ral, how often do you think sitting beneath that convenient story, there's the I'm not good enough story. Hmm. Well, we all, I think that's all, we all that I'm not good enough story or I'm not, um, even going for job interviews, for example, it was hmm. like, I'm not ready for that or is is almost, or I, I don't have all the skills yet or that's something I'll do in a few years' time. Um, you know, it, it could be the truth. So it could yeah. be the truth. Uh, but sometimes the, the, the real story, the closer to the story is, Again, I'm, I'm not prepared to put myself out there in case I don't get it, like I, I, in case I get rejected. That's, mm. you know, I mean, even look at things like asking someone out on a date. Mm. It was like the convenience story we tell ourselves is they probably wouldn't like me or they're <laughs> not my type, where the, probably the real story is, is I'm scared of rejection, which, you know, we all are. No one, no one likes to be rejected, mm. um, but we, you know, we, 
I, I think sometimes you, so what I learned when I went to Harvard is if you just ask yourself, just ask yourself, is that a convenient story you're telling mm. yourself? And the more you ask that, the closer you'll get to the truth. And the yeah. truth could be, yeah, you're right, it's just not a priority or I'm scared of rejection. And then if you're okay with that, that's fine. Mm. Um, but just know, just be aware that the convenient stories and sometimes the convenient stories can serve you like the delusional stories we tell ourselves so it was like um you know I, I think I tell myself a lot of delusional stories which gives me a lot of confidence to do something where a lot of other people would go oh god I would never do that isn't wouldn't that be embarrassing and I would be going how would that be embarrassing or just if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't all good can you give me an example oh god a specific example I've um I mean, just even the fact that I get up and and get on stage, like in front of hundreds of people. Two two years ago or two and a half years ago, I did a stand-up comedy course because, you know, just like there's an art in telling a story, there's an art in telling a joke. And so I want I would always want to get better at speaking and and speaking in a way that's not only educational but entertaining. So I did a stand-up comedy course to learn the art of writing jokes and delivering jokes, but it it coincided with doing a stand-up comedy gig. So you had to do a gig. And I the amount of people that said, oh my God, I would never do that. That would be the most terrifying thing. What if no one laughed? And I and I just sort of went, well, I don't, I don't know. Like what like I'm sure I'll be funny enough. And so um you know I just did it I like uh, I had my my best friend would be terrified of that and she wasn't even going to come and see me she goes I'm not going to come and see you because I'll be so nervous for you and I go why are you I'm not even nervous for me why are you nervous for me and she goes Mm. I'll see you next time I go I'm not changing careers I'm just doing this as a one-off so um yeah it's just I don't know just this delusional you know if what what could be the worst thing that could happen like you know no one laughs. So what? That that will create a funny story in itself. Um, do you think you were born like that, or is your immersion in storytelling helping you with some of the helpful and hindering delusional stories? Um, I, I think the work I do around storytelling has mm. sort of led me to understand this concept of the stories we tell ourselves, even though it's a very different, um, I guess meaning around storytelling uh I think I was raised I I think when I look at some of how I was raised I'm one of eight children and my parents were very much give it a go just seriously just give it a go um so we were always encouraged to just um give things a crack and if and if they didn't work out um don't give up but just try something different so Mm -hmm. I was we were always sort of encouraged to do that my dad was very much, you know, you would call my dad the ultimate feminist now where he would, regardless of whether it was me or my brothers, we were taught the same thing. So he taught all of us how to change tires on the car. He taught all of us how to paint. He taught all of us how to, you know, solder stuff. And like we learned everything because he just thought we should all learn how to do this. Mm. Um, some of it quite dangerous when I look back <laughs> on it now, but you know, that was the sixties and seventies. So yep. no OH and S there. So I, th- I think it was a combination of my upbringing to just give, give something a crack, uh, which I think then gives you confidence. I think confidence breeds confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so I think I think so. And if you were helping some, so let's say, you know, I come to you for a bit of help and I say, look, I'm, uh, I'm trying to do this presentation and you ask me a couple of questions and we get to the point where I kind of go, ah, right, my convenient story is I'm not funny, I'm not good enough, I'm not charismatic, whatever the, the delusional convenient story might be that's not helping me. Yeah. Uh, let's, say we get, let's say we get to that point and I can go, ah, right, I'm not funny. And then you help me create the, this other story. Well, I am funny, right? That, which is just the opposite. There's part of me that's going, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And no matter what you tell me, Ral, I'm not funny, right? Mm. How do you help someone, I, I guess, park that, get over that, find a way around the deeper story that might never come out, but that's still there? Yeah, yeah, look, it's, uh, Pete, it's interesting. I, I probably don't do a lot of, I don't do a lot of work in that. So I right. would be on that situation, for example, I would be more helping you come up with the stories you could share in your presentation. I would right. be doing that. But if, right. it, if it arose that you would be going, um, yeah, but I, I, I probably, I'm probably not going to do this presentation anyway, because of whatever I, I would probably ask you, well, is, is that a convenient story you're telling yourself? Yeah. I, I have had the experience once where I was actually just sitting next to a woman who was, um, she had to give a presentation next week. And I, so I wasn't mentoring or anything, but I was just sitting next to her over dinner the week before. And she, you know, was asking me what I did. And she went, oh my God, I've got to give a presentation. And she goes, and it's, it's an after dinner event. So, and she goes, they're normally really boring and I just don't want them to be boring, but I'm not funny. And I go, well, everyone's funny because it's a different level of funniness. And, mm. and I just sort of said what, and, and she told me, she goes, every, every yearly event they have these, everyone's got up, spoken too long, and they've been really boring. And I've been sitting there going, I can't wait for this speech to get over because I just want to drink now. And I go, why don't you just start with that? I go, that, that would be funny because it, it's not going to be hilarious, like laughing, but it's going to be people going, oh, my God, I've thought that the whole time. And it would just be funny enough for them to sort of then listen to you to go, well, maybe this is going to be different. And and yeah, and then I said, I mean, of course, you, then you've got to deliver on that. You can't yeah. you can't open with that and then go on forever and be really boring. But yeah. it's just you know, it'd be finding those little, okay, so you might not be funny. You might not be comedian. You might not be the funniest person in the room, but everyone can be their own version of funny or humorous, depending on the situation. Yeah. When I reflect on some of the clients I've worked with over the years, trying to help them make this distinction about being funny or having fun. Yeah. As in, you know, most of us who are not comedians might have the odd gag or joke, but that's not what we do. It's really an entry point into a conversation. And yet when you're in the pub or at dinner with your friends and family, what causes the most laughter is not necessarily the gags. It's just somebody says something normal. Mm. That's a contrast or it's, it's something they've misspelled or missaid. That creates the humor. Yeah. And so this distinction between telling gags and being funny as opposed to having fun, like you've just described, standing up and seeing that very thing might create more energy, laughter and connection and authenticity than the most perfectly scripted joke. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So yeah, it's not. And I, look, I don't think anyone should be trying to be funny. And it's also too if you if you're not funny and if it doesn't come naturally, then don't try to be the funniest person in the world. Because first of all, why 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 are you trying to be? And you know, like again, you get back to convenience stories about well, why are you trying to be funny? And because it'd be like, well, I don't know. Um, because everyone, I thought if you present, you need to be funny. It's like no, you don't at all. That's just one style. It's yeah. you know, and people have people have dry. Oh, sorry, my phone. You should always turn your phone off when you're doing a podcast. <laughs> That's not only a convenient story you tell yourself, but a probably very yeah. practical story. Very you practical story. Yeah. Um, Ral, have you come across um, Ernest Hemingway's six word stories? Yes. Yes, I have. What's, what's your is that a helpful frame? Oh, uh, look, is that too I, difficult for people. I, th- I think in the storytelling that I teach, it's probably not that helpful. So right. for the for you know your listeners that don't know, the six word Hemingway story is you know can you tell a story in six words? And it'd be like um, baby shoes, brand new, never worn. Yeah, that's the classic. And isn't it? So that's the classic. So when you go, so now now the listener or the reader mm-hmm. interprets what happened. Yep. What happened, like, you know, what was the baby never born? Yeah. Um, yep. Did they just buy the wrong size shoes? Like, you know, you, you don't know. Um, so it, that to me is putting something out there, which very much is allowing the person to interpret what's the story behind that, the backstory. Yep. The storytelling that I work in business and in corporates is going, how do you communicate your message more effectively through stories? So right. um, it's it, it's got to be a bit more direct than than the six the six word yeah. Hemingway story. Yeah. And so if I if I came to you and said, you know, I want to be, I want to communicate the values better or you know, tell the strategy better, would is there any top pocket tips you could offer people about how to do that? Yeah, look, my my key and where I go in is when we share stories in business, we tend to share business stories, which mm-hmm. and which is fine, but it's the default. So if we want to be known as a brand around uh, innovative, we will tell stories about how we've been innovative in the past, like we would, which is fine. But they they stories tend to be more case studies as opposed to stories, which can still be valuable, but they're probably not as powerful as stories. So the work I do is if, so say, let's just say one of your examples is innovative or um, integrity. It's working with leaders going, so what does that mean to you? What does innovative mean to you? Don't, don't worry about what the company have said it means. What does it mean to you? And helping them be really clear and then helping them find a personal story to communicate that. So, mm. and what I find is when I go into organizations and run storytelling training and I'll, I'll say to a leader, okay, so we're using the values and I go, what's your, what value did you pick? And they go, I, I picked integrity because it's really important to me. Okay. Okay. Right. So in your own words, tell me what that means. And I'll go um, respect. I go, yep. What, what else? It's um, being uh, truthful. And I was like, okay and I think this is when I go you can use more than one word but but it, but it, but they go oh it, so it could be it means um you know if you say you're going to do something do it I go okay great what what else does it mean and then they'll normally go oh gee you've put me on the spot here I haven't really thought about it this much before and that I think is ultimately one of the biggest mistakes we make in business is when we're rolling out 
strategy, values. We go, okay, these are our four values and this is what it means. But the leaders aren't given the space to say, what does it mean to me personally? And then once I've made that connection of what that means to me personally, so if you say you're going to do something, do it, what's a personal story that you could share to Mm. communicate that? Mm. And because you're going to have work-related stories, which are fine, but what's a personal story that shows that this value is really important to you? And also when, so find a time in your personal life, as in it didn't happen at work, which demonstrates that value. So whether, whether you've lived that value or you haven't lived that value. So if I just looked at that, if I just looked at that value of integrity and, you know, for me on a personal level and my business, if it was, if you say you're going to do something, do it. I would go, well, what's a personal story and a work story that you could use to demonstrate that? But I'll I'll give you a quick example of both because I think it highlights the the power in them. So a work-related story could be, you know, quite a few years ago, I had a potential client who rang and spoke about this conference they wanted me to do. They asked if I was available on the date. I said, yes. I said, but we'll keep it as a tentative, but we need to, for you to confirm the date. And we followed them up once or twice and they never got back. And this was months ago. And then I was, I was booking a trip to America and it was like, well, we never heard back from them. Now we should have probably tried one more time, but we just assumed that it wasn't going ahead because, you know, I I think we had tried twice, but uh, so assumed it wasn't going ahead. And then after I booked my flights to America, they came back and, and, you know, said, so we're all locked in for that date. And it was like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, like nothing was confirmed. And they're going, no, well, we assumed it was confirmed from our end. Now, I could have had a fight. I could have whatever. And I said, you know what? I will just, I just deferred my flight. I just changed it. I think I had to change it by a day or two. So, so because in my mind, there was some form of commitment on my behalf. And so I was going to commit to that. So, I mean, that's a story of me living and breathing my values, which is, you know, okay, good, good on me. Look at me, look how great I am type thing. But now I want to give you an example of a personal story mm. where, I ha- where I didn't live the value. And I think you'll experience the power in it. So if we're talking about, if you say you're going to do something, do yep. it, which is important to me. I remember when my daughter, Jess, she was about 10 and she was in swimming, you know, a little swimming school thing. It was just an inside small school sports. And she wanted me, she said, mum, can you come and watch me swim? And I said, yes, I can. And so I, I was there, I made it in time and I got to the, the swimming thing and, and proceeded to speak to all the parents and unbeknownst to me, Jess was on the starting blocks, the start her race and was yelling at me to get my attention. And I did not hear because I was talking, talking, talking. She got to the end to do the tumble turn at the end where I was sitting. I was only sitting probably a few meters away. And instead of just doing the tumble turn, she actually stopped and yelled out, mum. And I looked at her and all I could see was just a combination of anger and real disappointment that, and, and she just then kept swimming. And at the end she goes, I was trying to get your attention. You weren't even watching me. And it doesn't matter how I, how I said, no, I did see you. It, it, it was, it was gone. The moment was gone. And, and that, I mean, that was 10 years ago and I can still, I can still see her little face of disappointment. So 
it's, it's sharing stories of when you haven't lived the values that sometimes, well, not sometimes, that I think are way more powerful when you have lived the values and sharing right. personal stories that show that this is, this is actually a really important personal value that I have. And of course, then it moves over to my business and the yeah. way I run business, but it's the personal story that's more powerfully impactful than the work story. Yeah. So for the, for, and I felt the, the difference there, Ralph, thank you for sharing that. For the listener then, what, what are some of the, are there any simple distinctions between the, whether it's personal or professional, the, the story that you told at the start there versus the story that you've just told? Are there, are there, what are the kind of simple differences that, you know, you know, you and I could unpick that two minute version and go, there was this language, there was this, you know, yeah. but for the, the, the simplicity of it, are there main differences between what makes a story work and what makes it impactful yeah so I think some of the most powerful stories is when you show vulnerability and so for showing vulnerability is pretty much saying I, I didn't get it right and yeah. or this was this was even if you did do it right like even if it was a story of when you did live the value it could be a story around how hard it was and how challenging it was because yeah. you know we all we all don't live our values 100% of the time so sharing stories about how that how we made you feel and regretted so I think that's that's a distinction besides sometimes more with a case study it was like this is what the problem was and this is what we did and this is what we achieved and this was the outcome which I can learn a lot of that but it's not it's not a motive it's not a motive so vulnerability brings in emotion ultimately that's what we're trying to do is is tap into emotion and when I say emotion it's not like emotional like we're not we're not deliberately sharing stories to make people get emotional or cry, but the yep. outcome of a story is I, 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 I attach it to emotion. So it, yep. it, it triggers emotion. So it helps me visualize something. It helps me feel something. So that's when we talk about emotion, it just helps me feel something and I, I connect with it. We'll often talk about, I, I really, when people go, I really connected with your story, they're saying connected because they felt something. And that, so that's, that's what I mean by emotion as opposed to emotional. And I think the really important, some of the really important things when you're sharing stories in a business context is they've got to be really succinct. So yeah. My bit of rule of thumb is one to two minutes. Once you're going over two minutes, and especially when you're sharing a personal story, people are just, they will start to think, get to the point. And the moment, the moment anyone's thinking, get to the point, you're losing them. So you're absolutely mm. losing them. Mm. I think they've got to be absolutely authentic. Like they've got to be, they've just got to be, some people go, well, as long as it gets the point across what's the harm done Mm. um but there's a massive amount of harm done because you know it's just and when you retell a story you don't just retell it you relive it so it's got to be succinct really short um it's got to be authentic it's got to be relatable and the you know those and what i mean by relatable is because we do have a connection so the also to that so though my story about like my daughter Jess and not being being at her swimming but not being present. Yep. Is it's it's not this big life changing moment of mm-hmm. but it's 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 a it's a story that we've probably all been guilty of in some, mm-hmm. you know, when we've we've sort of said we'd do something but didn't or was there but not present. So it's those little day-to-day ones that make it that make your stories really relatable. And mm-hmm. that's 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 important. Um, a distinction for me, Raul, that I picked up for, for me as you've talked there is the difference between reliving it and retelling it. Yeah. What's the difference? When when it's a personal story, 
-hmm. and it's true and it means something important to you, you don't just retell it, you relive it and what you relive it because you feel the emotions. And as and again, if it if it's like a very practical story, like a like a case study or a work story, mm-hmm. we tend to retell and it's just almost yeah. regurgitating the information. Reliving it means you feel the emotion again, which means people sense the emotion. Mm. So look, every time I tell that story about Jess, like it, it's not, I'm not crying or anything. I'm not getting emotional, but I can feel it. I yeah. can absolutely feel it. And when I share it, the, the people hearing it can sort of sense, can, can mm. sense my own disappointment in myself. Yeah. So that, that's that's why the reliving, and I think that brings it, that the authenticity to it as well yeah um as a family we've got a, and i've shared a few stories myself about this a bit of a family ritual we watch things like the voice um Stuart has got talent um not because it's a bit of you know family entertainment but I, I find it fascinating when you hear the judges comment about someone who delivered a brilliant song but i didn't quite believe you yeah right you've got a great pitch but it was a bit cold and I I wonder if people really I think they get it they feel it but they maybe can't articulating it Mm. and I'm wondering if that's the same in business where people are sometimes your distinction they're retelling it but there's a just an edge of authenticity genuineness felt experience in it that if they did that not only would they feel it and relive it but the audience would feel it and therefore live it too yeah, I, I agree. I There's something in the way, it's not only the story, but it's the way it's delivered. Yeah. And I think ultimately it comes down to the story's got to be authentic, so it's got to be true. But yeah. I think you also got to believe in the message. So to mm-hmm. me, authenticity is two parts to it. It's the story's got to be true, yeah. but it's got to be true for you as it's got to be congruent with what you really believe. Um, And you see this sometimes where leaders might get up and share a personal story around the importance of work-life balance. You're sitting there going, but that's crap because you don't do that. Like you, you are the opposite of that. So it, it's just there's something missing. And, and with authenticity, sometimes you can't put your finger on it but you know that something's not quite right. And I think that like your example of the voice, where it was like, there's probably where they're going, I just sense that it wasn't truly you. So I think there's got to be congruence is you have to believe in the message. You've got to believe what you're talking about. So if you're, you know, if you're talking about integrity and sharing stories, then you've got to truly believe that. Mm. Um, And I think if you get the congruence right and and the story's true and it means something to you, then that's when it will come across as really authentic. And then then when it's really authentic, people believe it, people create a connection, they'll remember it, they learn a lot more about you. There's um, all the science with storytelling shows that uh, you not only connect to the story, Mm. but you also connect to the storyteller. So um, that, and that's the science part of storytelling. So there's the, you know, there's a huge amount of research done by yeah, there is. very smart people, neuroscientists. Fascinating. That, yeah, fascinating, it's, it's isn't it? Amazing. Um, I'm maybe opening up a can of worms here, Ral, and I know we've kind of chatted for a long time, so, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so imagine I'm a second tier manager, I'm a GM, an EGM, and the strategies come down from above, however it's been created, 
whether it's bottom up, top down, you know, from our parent in Europe, whatever, however it is. And I'm not quite, I don't quite get it. I don't quite believe it. I don't quite like it. But my role has a responsibility to share the story, to share the narrative. But mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't, ugh, we're making the same mistake. Whatever the rationale is that I've, I'm sitting here feeling a little bit incongruent. Yeah. But my and, role demands I've got to you, be congruent. Yep. Yeah, perfect. How, how would, would could you offer any advice in that in dealing with that dilemma? Yeah, I've and I've I've, I've seen this happen a lot where time, right? you know it, the people going okay we we've been told we've got to implement this strategy, but there's part of me that doesn't believe it. The part of me thinks it's perhaps this is not going to work. Mm. So I I would say in that situation your message changes. So the message isn't around how great the strategy is because you don't believe it. Maybe the message is, let's give this a go. That, and you're being honest that I am not 100% convinced myself, but the rest of the leadership team is or the board is. So maybe there's something in this. So let's give it a go and, and yep. give it 100% and see what happens. And maybe I'm wrong. So there's a story around that. There could also be a story around accepting the umpire's decision. It was like, you know, we, we're we in a company and not all of us have to agree on this, but if we're playing the game, we have to accept the umpire's decision. We have mm. to accept the rule. So there could be, I mean, you know, that's that's not going to be your motivational rah, rah, rah story, yeah. but, you know, strategy very rarely is, and even when they are, they're the ones that seem inauthentic. Yeah. So I think it's it's finding the message that you're comfortable with. And and so I've, I've, do, I've done this a lot with senior execs. Okay. I go, well, uh, maybe not senior execs because they're probably on board, but the next level down mm. is your message is changing to let's give this a go and see what happens. Mm. Mm. And do you find I had a question in mind and it just slipped my mind for a second in those situations is it better do you think to do that or is it better to not even communicate anything at this point is it better to say I'm unsure I'm not quite aligned yet because the reason I'm asking the question that I had in my mind was so often I'll chat with and like you coach and speak to leaders about and the request they make on what they're trying to do is get buy-in yeah. Right. I'm telling a story to get buy-in. Now, I have a personal view, which I'll share in a second. Is, is buy-in binary or is it on a continuum? I think it's on a continuum. So I think I think so going back, I think it's it's you should communicate. So I think the worst case scenario is okay, you've got to communicate this message. You don't believe in it, but you just pretty much lie and say oh this is going to be good 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 but you don't okay. believe in it because that's yep. got that's got failure written all over it yeah not communicating anything's got failure written all over it and especially in this day and age where we go oh, i'm not going to communicate until i've got all the answers or until i'm fully committed to it it was like things are changing so bloody fast these days that that's yep. not even like that's not even practical anymore so i think you you communicate exactly what you're thinking to say look i still have doubts about this but we're we're moving through it and and it, and it keeps evolving so you know the story becomes about that and then i would go you know you the, i'm sure you've had heaps of times in your life where you haven't had all the answers but you've taken the first step i mean having children getting married, taking on a new job, moving overseas. None of those situations we were 
fully in and knew all the answers. It was just like, okay, well, let's just take a step and see how it goes. So I, I would go share a story about that, which we do in our personal lives all the time. Yeah. Um, so what we're asking now in this, maybe in this business situation is no different to that. It's no different to that. It's just saying, look, let's, let's just give it a go. Well, it's been fascinating chatting to you. Um, I think stories are omnipotent across everything everyone does just all of the time. Yep. <laughs> and, and being aware of them, you've certainly raised some questions and some insights about how one might be more aware of them. I might finish, if it's okay with you, with some lighter questions that you perhaps don't know are coming. Okay, let's go um, for it. The first one would be really easy. What, what's, you know, are you sunrise or sunset? uh sunrise as in i'm a better morning person i'm right. a better i'm a better morning person than okay. at night i go to bed early but okay. if i had to if i if you gave me a choice of do i want to watch the sunrise or watch the sunset i would choose watching the sunset interesting interesting um what's the story you live your life by um story i live my life by is Give it a crack because what's the worst thing that could happen? Okay. Um, do you prefer stories with clear endings or ambiguous endings? In my line of work, I like stories with clear endings. Okay. Um, what's a book that's changed your life? I'd have to say it's Stephen Denning's book on um, organisational storytelling because I okay. read it... I read it about 20 years ago and it was Stephen Denning's uh, senior exec at the World Bank. And it was what it's when I read that, I thought if a senior exec at the World Bank has written a book on storytelling, I think there's something in this. So it was at that moment where I was thinking, I think there's something in storytelling and teaching people in organizations to use story. So mm. that was the book that gave me, I think the confidence to go, yep, you're right. There's something in this. Which, uh, you know, fascinates me, you know, here we are in Australia recording this podcast, which the Indigenous community have lived centuries yeah. with storytelling. Mm. Yeah, with tens and tens of thousands of years. So like, if you need no other indication of the power mm. of storytelling, you just have to look at our First Nations um, uh, Dreamtime stories, where messages have been passed on for literally tens and tens of thousands of years, all through a story. Mm. Well, I think that's a perfect way to pause um, on that. I really appreciate one, your time and, and two, just some of the insights and particularly some of the vulnerable stories you've shared with us. Uh, I'm sure the listeners will have fascination uh, around re retelling and, and re-listening to the podcast this afternoon. Thanks, Pete. Love talking to you. Thanks, Ralph.